Well, good morning. We've got the teacher's outfit on here. Get you on your toes. We're going to teach this morning. I've been hanging around with the philosophers, and it's rubbing off on me. That's actually true. Um, it's, that might be odd to some of you, but um, I'm actually a, um, a philosophy student. I remember 10 years ago, I met somebody, and I was in Texas, in Dallas, and I met somebody who said they were going into philosophy, and I thought to myself, why in the world would a Christian ever do such a strange thing? And uh, I just, I, I couldn't understand that. And, um, and here I am, 10 years later, absolutely enjoying thinking about God, thinking hard about life. What does it mean to take the truth of God's word and unpack it into the real world we live in? What does it mean to think hard about things? Uh, what you find a lot of times is much, much of the, the apologetic material that you might read. If you ever look at their footnotes, a lot of times they get into some of these basic questions. What's truth? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have a soul? What does it mean for God to be there? What is time? What is foreknowledge? What are those things? Great topics, boring to some people, uh, exciting to others. Um, but it's good to see you all. I, I want, I'd like to say this this morning, that this assembly is an encouragement to me and to believers in this area. And I want to commend you for your work in the Lord. Um, I don't want to give you a big head, but Paul commends the believers, right? He does that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, so it's okay to commend one another. Thank you for your work in the Lord, and keep on keeping on for the Savior. He enjoys it, he, and, and he's pleased with that. Um, okay, well, this morning... And this evening, God willing, I'd like to talk about a topic that I've tried to speak at, dot, 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 at every assembly in Southern California. Um, and that is characteristics of a healthy local church. Now, before you think about it, you're thinking, I've already heard this 15 times. Um, it might be a little bit different. And my desire really is to share this message with every assembly every New Testament pattern assembly, New Testament pattern church um, that, I, that I get a chance to speak at in this area. And I've tried to do that so far. Um, you've gotten two handouts, I think. One of them is a handout with a sentence written nine times. I mean, if you want something to write on, that's for you. Um, and then the other one is something that could potentially ruin the schedule this morning. If I start talking about this too much, then... The message will, will wind up going over, which I don't want to do. Let's just open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Again, the topic this morning is going to be characteristics of a healthy local church. Characteristics of a healthy local assembly. And I've picked nine. Nine of them. I'll try to do all nine today. Anybody who knows me is already saying it's not going to happen. But... Um, We'll do our best. And there are more than nine. You know that. But I've just picked out some key ones. This morning's message is going to be about balance. And I'll try to explain what I mean by balance. But let's open up with the word of God. 1 Corinthians 14. I'm reading out of the New King James English translation this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And let's start in at verse number 20. Paul writes to an assembly in the region of Achaia, Corinth. He writes this. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. When it comes to understanding biblical truth, don't be little kids. Be mature. 
However, when it comes to sin, when it comes to malice, in malice, be babes, but in understanding, be mature. And then he says this. In the law, the Old Testament, it is written, and then he quotes it, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. That's the Jewish nation. And yet, for all that, despite the fact that God speaks something to the Jewish nation by the tongues and languages of men who are not Jewish, they will not hear me. Even something as amazing as that won't get their attention, the prophet writes. And the Lord says to the prophet, thus says the Lord. Verse 22, therefore, because of this Old Testament passage, you know something about tongues. It's not a message this morning on tongues, but what do you know? He says, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Okay, therefore, because of this, if the whole assembly, the whole ecclesia, the whole church comes together in one phrase, place, that's a, that's a helpful little phrase, when the whole assembly comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in. Notice he's assuming that's going to happen. He is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And here's the verse we're going for. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report what? What conclusion does this person draw in that local church? That God is among you. It's that little line I'd like you to focus on. If a person was to come in among our local fellowship, be it over in Bethel and Riverside or here in Ontario, would they draw that conclusion? God is in this place. God is among these people. It's a question I'd like to leave with you. Let's just bow our heads one more time and ask God to help us use our time in a way that pleases him. Father, you know that I can stand up and, and speak and Talk about different things, Lord. I've said this many times. But I'm absolutely dependent upon you by your Holy Spirit, both leading my lips and applying the scriptures to the hearts that are here, Lord. Father, if I say anything or do anything that is not pleasing to you, Lord, I ask that you'd help the believers in grace to overlook it or to correct me, Lord, if necessary. But that you would help the believers here to remember the things that you would have them to. Lord, we say these things so easy but we confess our need for your leading, your convicting, your guiding. Unless the Lord build the house, they that labor, labor in vain. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My father and some other men planted an assembly in Tampa in the 80s, early 80s. I was about seven. He grew up in local churches like this, um, but when he was my age, he felt that the local church that he was in, maybe a little earlier, maybe he was in his late 20s, really wasn't, really wasn't trying to live out the New Testament's pattern for the church. And he wanted his kids to grow up in an assembly and see that. And so he and some other families started to work in North Tampa, Tampa, Florida. That's where, I, that's where I'm from. And I got to grow up and see that. And... He is still shepherding there, going on 30 years now. 
And one time I was standing with him, I, I, I probably said this before, and I say this almost all the time when I share this message, I was standing with him um, looking out the doors of the chapel building. Um, we were up at the front, and he said to me, he said, anytime somebody walks through those doors, they're looking for something. Anytime somebody walks through the doors of this building, they're looking for something. And they're going to figure out in about 15 minutes if it's here. The point of that is not to suggest that we do everything that we do for those who walk in the door. But it tells you something about him as a shepherd, as an elder. He was, his antenna was up. And he was thinking about who came in the door. And their needs and who they were and where they were coming from. I'm really thinking about his vantage point as a shepherd. Uh, Paul brings up something like this. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, people will come in and they will draw certain conclusions based on what you do. Now, you know and I know that there is a, there, there's a, a great potential error um, to build your local work around people and their needs as opposed to Christ and his will. But it's interesting that it does come up. What do people see when they come in among us? What are they looking for? What are believers? You know there are believers that are looking for healthy local churches. We find that hard to believe sometimes. It's, it's easy to sort of talk about the church today. And there are people that want to hear the word of God preached. They want strong biblical leadership. They want to meet with godly women, godly men. And they're looking for that. And some believers have settled for the best that they can find. And this message is basically about being balanced as a local church, and making sure that the things that we're doing are, in fact, the things that the New Testament majors on. Let me give you an example, and then we'll get into, I'll, I'll list out some of these. Um, how many of you have seen Harold McKay's Assembly Distinctives? This is a reprint by Everyday Publications. If you grew up among New Testament pattern assemblies in America, you might have been handed an older copy of this, maybe back in the 70s. I have one of the older copies. Here's a book, The Christian's Heritage by George Hall and James Naismith. It was a print-up from a CMML conference years ago. Good little book. Why am I holding up books? Because if, like, me, the first book my dad gave me when I was 12 was Christ Loved the Church by William MacDonald. The first book, it shows you what kind of home I grew up in. Uh, a great home. Um, and, and many of the local assemblies that I visited sometimes so focus on assembly distinctives or certain aspects of the New Testament's pattern for the church that they, that they miss other aspects. Someone has said before that error or even heresy is often the overemphasis or the underemphasis of truth. You ever met anybody like that? They so focus on one aspect of the truth and completely neglect any other aspect of it. Now, we're not going to talk about heresy this morning or this evening. But that's, that's, that's my concern. I've, I've spoken at a lot of assemblies, and there are a number of men, and you might have heard them talk about that. They're, they're, they visited these assemblies, and they've concluded they can tell you what the scripture says about the church. They can name off assembly distinctives, but there's no life here. Something's gone wrong. You see the picture? It's happening. It's happening all over the country, where people will come in among you, and they will not draw the conclusion that God is among you. It's sad to see that, and it's sad to hear about that. Um, 
It was a, a writer who was writing on revival, and he talked about visiting local churches, and he, he was with the Baptist group, and he went into this group, and he says, and I went into the Plymouth Brethren, and in all the groups he says, God wasn't there, God wasn't there, God wasn't there. Now, that's a big conclusion to draw. Um, but he was looking for something, a sense of an eagerness and a hunger for God and to see God really working and a dissatisfaction among the believer's hearts to just go through the routine. Uh, let's look at some of the things that I think keep us from going through the routines. Uh, I, my goal this morning really is to be positive, to set before you sort of a vision, a pattern, something that, that we can do. A lot of times people will get up and they're sort of, they're constantly, they're sort of beating the Lord's people, you know. <laughs> you know, you failed again, you failed again. These are good things that God has said we can do, and let me share some of them with you. I'm going to read them off, the, health, the marks of the healthy local church, just so at least you get them. You might want to write them. I hope I don't speak too fast. Marks of a healthy local church, characteristics of a healthy local church. Um, the first one that I'd like to speak about will be Healthy local churches have leaders that understand the difference between managing meetings and shepherding people. Healthy local churches have leaders that understand the difference between managing meetings and shepherding people. It's a big difference between the two. They're not exclusive. They're not, you know, leaders do both, but. Two, healthy local churches have a plan to teach the whole Bible and its doctrines to all the believers. I think of children. I think of adults. There's a, there's a deliberate plan, and I'm going to give you scriptures from which I think I can rightly take that word deliberate plan. Some believers say, I don't think we should plan that. That's usurping the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'll give you a scripture that says I think we have permission to do that from scripture. Three, healthy local churches, wave at me if I'm going too fast, healthy local churches mobilize all believers to participate in evangelism. I didn't say they send everybody out to do door-to-door -door work. That's not what I said. I said healthy local churches mobilize all believers to participate in evangelism in some way or another, regularly. Four. In healthy local churches, the believers are in fellowship, not merely membership. In healthy local churches, the believers are in fellowship. They share something in common. They're not just members at the local church. Number five, healthy local churches are deliberately trying to help people grow spiritually. Someone at this local church is thinking about whether the people here are growing. They're thinking about each other. Are we growing spiritually? Am I the same I was five years ago, ten years ago? How many times have preachers stood up and said, um, you know, you should be different than you were? And it makes you wonder, are they different uh, than you were last year? Healthy local church, six, praise Steadfastly, they take prayer seriously. The most neglected meeting in evangelical churches, bar none across the board. Seven, a healthy local church engages in real worship. 
worship that's in spirit and in truth. Two more, and then we can all go home. Healthy local churches financially support and practically support God's work, especially those parts of God's work that they've benefited from. Healthy local churches financially support God's work. And nine, healthy local churches carry out some form of discipline. And I'll explain what I mean by that word. Healthy local churches carry out some form of church discipline. Let's transition to this little handout here. You'll notice the title says, How New Testament Patterned is Our Local Church. Now, I won't spend time telling you the story of why I've started to use the phrase New Testament Patterned um, instead of talking about the assemblies. If people come and ask you, is this group part of the assemblies? I don't ask that question anymore. I simply ask, is this a New Testament Patterned church? Every believer, well, I'll say this, in the, in, the, in the scriptures, there are not churches and assemblies. There are just ecclesia, ecclesia. They're simply gatherings of believers. There are not two categories. The question is, is that gathering of believers New Testament patterned? That's what the early brethren movement that this church has its heritage in, if you look at its history probably, um, that's what it was all about. And so I asked the question, is a local church New Testament patterned? To what extent is it? You'll find, and this, shirt, this, this sheet is sort of designed to help you see this, that, that many local churches are New Testament patterned in some aspects and they aren't in others. By the word pattern, I'm simply thinking of all of the things that we see the church in the New Testament doing. That makes up the pattern. It's all of those things. Uh, I think I've given this out before. I edited it a lot. I fixed up a number of things, and I put a few verses in. The, the point of this, this is just a thinking tool. Just, again, to help people sit down and look at their local church, and they say, you know what? We do this and maybe number 7 and number 11, but, boy, we don't do any of these down here. And then you might see a, a group of believers, a, a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church down the road. It's an assembly of believers. It's an ecclesia of believers. And they might be New Testament patterned in certain aspects, but not in others. My desire is to encourage any fellowship of believers, any group of believers, to be as New Testament patterned as possible, both in their, 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 their actions and in their doctrine. One of the things that I haven't seen assemblies like this do often is to share the truth they have with other believers. and say, we've benefited from this. We'd like to encourage you to think about this. And this is a tool um, to do that. So when I said balance this morning, this is what I'm thinking about. Local churches that are thinking maybe not just about the Lord's Supper, not just about eldership, but are thinking about a number of things that you see in the New Testament. Are we New Testament patterned? To that extent. Um, all right, well, let's get into what our, our, our first topics here for this morning and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. What does it mean to be a healthy local church? What does it mean to do what the New Testament called us to do? Every year we should stop and come back and think about that. 
What does that look like? If you were planting this local church all over again, or a group of 15 of you went to somewhere else in Southern California and started a new assembly, you would at some point say, what do we have to do to do this well? Right? Blank stares. That's what you, would, it's what you better do. What do we have to do to do this well? What does it mean to be what Christ wants us to be? And one of those characteristics is that someone at that local assembly has to shepherd people. Eldership work is people work. Shepherding is people work. I'm going to ask some questions as I go along. And they'll be sort of from the perspective of the person that comes in the door. I mentioned that. Somebody comes in. Somebody comes in, they might ask the question to themselves, will somebody here shepherd me? Will somebody here shepherd me? If I come to this local church, is there someone here that's going to look out for my spiritual state? Or am I just going to sit in a pew? 1 Peter chapter 5, we read this. The elders who are among you, I exhort, this is Peter writing, I who am a fellow elder, very interesting phrase, he's an apostle, he says, I'm a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And then he sets the, the chief shepherd, the example before them. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. My point this morning is not to talk about eldership. You've probably had messages on that. But the simple question, you would be surprised to find out how many local churches are out there that have elders that aren't really shepherding anybody. They're managing meetings. They're, they're simply making sure that someone is scheduled for Sunday, that the doors are open, that things look a certain way, and that when there's a fire, they put it out. That's a completely different way of going about God's work when it's compared to shepherding the flock. I mean, you can already think about sheep and shepherding them, and what does it mean to really take care of them and keep them healthy? You can think of the words that are used, to watch, to protect, to feed, to guard, to be an example. I remember asking our brother Mike, you all know Mike well, Mike Atwood, you know, he talked about two of the biggest needs, this was a couple years ago, for local churches, and one of them was a need for, for real shepherds, and another was a need for when people stand up and teach the word of God, that they really teach it. They don't just sort of mumble through something, that they're feeding God's people. Two big needs that he saw nationally across the country. Turn to Psalm chapter 87. You know, there are two beautiful passages where the Lord talks about shepherds. God talks about shepherds in the Old Testament. One of them is in Psalm chapter 87. If I come here, will someone shepherd me? Will someone look out for me? Psalm 87 Actually, Psalm 78, got my numbers mixed up there. Psalm 78. Last two verses. Look what it says here. I'll read from verse 70, actually. Last three verses. 
The passage talks about Israel and it says that God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds from following the ewes that had young. Think of David going at a pace that was good for the sheep that had little baby sheep. You see the care in that phrase? He was following them. He wasn't driving them too hard. You notice the psalmist puts the baby sheep in there to get your attention thinking about what kind of shepherd David was. And he brought him to shepherd who? Jacob, his people. So he shepherded them, look at these two beautiful words, according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Shepherds need integrity of heart. We need men who are righteous men to shepherd God's people. Men who care, men who love God, men who have integrity of heart, not just people that have good business skills, somebody who was a head of a company somewhere. And so we'll say, well, you know, you can, no, no, that's not the biblical characteristic, the biblical qualifications for shepherd. God wanted a man that had integrity of heart, that was God's man. You know what the difference between David and Saul was? Saul had a half of a heart for David. David was selected because he had a whole heart for God. Excuse me, Saul had half a heart for God. He had a divided heart. David had a whole heart for God, integrity of heart, and then he guided them with skillfulness of hands. It takes skill to shepherd people. It takes work. It takes sensitivity. It takes wisdom. There's a crying need for people to be trained to be shepherds. You're not, it just doesn't happen automatically. Many assemblies have people that are leading and they get right up until the point where they can't lead anymore and suddenly the assembly lays hands on somebody because they've been there all the time or they're the oldest person there, they're, they're the son of somebody. Instead of training somebody up for the last 5, 10, 15 years. It is a, it's an epidemic. Integrity of heart and skillfulness of hands. There are people that are skilled people, people, people. They don't have integrity of heart. There are some people that have hearts for God, but they need some skill. Both of those things. You might want to write down, I won't go into it, write down Ezekiel 34. God gets upset with the shepherds in Ezekiel 34. That's a, that's a powerful passage to read. I won't read it. Some people think about leadership and they think about trustee boards. They think about who controls the money and the property, who controls the building, who holds keys and signs checks? Who decides what gets done where? They're, they're concerned about many things except for people. Isn't it interesting that the Lord Jesus, who did the Lord Jesus allow to hold the money box? The thief. The thief. Did he know that he was a thief? He knew he was a thief. He shows you where his priorities were. What were his priorities on? People. He wanted men to be with him. Judas was stealing money the whole time. But the Lord got himself some men. And they were with him. And then they turned the world upside down. It doesn't take money to turn the world upside down. It takes people whose hearts are for God. Who will shepherd people? Healthy local churches have a plan to teach all of God's word to people. Let me share two verses with you. Turn over to Acts chapter 20. 
Now, you can call me on the carpet if I take this verse out of context. But I like a phrase in here, so I might be about to proof text, okay? You know what proof texting is? Proof texting is where you find a, a verse that has the words you want in it, and you just go with it, right? You, you line those up. You don't pay a lot of attention to context. If people come knocking at your door to hand you lit literature about Jehovah's discreet and faithful slave organization, if you can't remember anything, just remember to read the passage with them. Have them read the passage, the chapter that they're working out of. They're not going to change. I'm talking about the, 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 the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and I don't want to be flippant and unkind about it because the Lord loves them. But have them read the context oftentimes. Um, and um, I, won't, I won't get off on the topic. But Acts chapter 20, Paul is sort of giving his last words to some elders at, uh, at the elders of Ephesus. And they've come down to the coastal town of Miletus. And I've shared this verse many times, but I think it's a helpful thing. It keeps something in my mind. And, he, and Paul says this in verse number 20. We'll read from verse number 25. And indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching. What an interesting phrase. What does it say there? What did Paul preach? Kingdom of God. Can you teach the kingdom of God to, to believers today? Is someone, he, is someone here equipped to tell me how the kingdom of God relates to the church and figures into God's plan? Because that's what Paul preached. And he says it at the end of Acts. Interesting topic. The kingdom, the church is not the kingdom, but it's part of the kingdom. I shouldn't have even said that. I should leave that for another message. Um, that's the big picture of what God is doing, the kingdom. Um, and he says, I've gone among you preaching the kingdom of God. And then he says, you will see my face no more. Therefore, because of this, because I'm not going to see you anymore, I want you to remember something. I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. What would make you guilty of the blood of men? Verse 28, or 27, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In Paul's mind, if he didn't take what God wanted him to give, and he, if he didn't give it to people, he was guilty. You remember, he looked at his ministry as one of a steward. He says, there's something different about my ministry than about yours. I didn't do this as a volunteer. God made me a steward. Stewards in the, the Roman world weren't typically volunteers. You could buy one. They were slaves. They stewarded your work. And Paul says, that's how my ministry is. God took me and he says, this is what you're going to do. And so I have to preach. Woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel, he says. And so what do I do to go above and beyond my call? I, he says, I, I, I preach it free of charge. I, I, I go and I preach and I, I don't take anything, even though I could. I work with my hands. I've got to do something to go above and beyond the call of duty, if I can use a secular phrase today. Um, and it's an interesting thing to look at in the scriptures when he says that. But he says, I have not failed to give to the believers the whole counsel of God. And that phrase makes me think about this. Do we teach all of God's counsel? Now, some commentators might suggest that it has to do primarily with God's plan of salvation. But I'm going to lift it a little bit out of the passage and think about teaching all of the word of God, Genesis to Revelation. 
I don't think that's too much of a stretch when I use the phrase the whole counsel of God. Because all of scripture points to Christ, right? Jesus in, in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he showed them how all of the scripture spoke of him. Okay? It's all of God's counsel. Do we teach the whole word of God at our local church? Does God want it all taught? Is there a plan to make sure that we teach all of the word of God? Or do 10 years, 15 years go by before we ever open up to certain portions of the scripture? Expository preaching, I think, is very important. I'll give you an, an argument for expository preaching, which I'm not doing right now. This is not expository preaching. This is sort of topical. Expository preaching is where a preacher or a teacher takes the word of God and allows the grammatical structure of the passage to form or control the message. So that if Paul makes four points about sin, you make Paul's four points about sin. Why? So that God's word gets to speak for itself in the local church at some point. If God, the Holy Spirit, breathed theopneustos, the scriptures out, all scriptures God, God breathed, then there might have been some deliberacy to four points about sin in that passage. We might be apt to not teach a certain portion of scripture because it's not interesting to us, maybe. But God has it in his word. Do we teach through all of the scriptures? Here's a second passage, 2 Timothy 2, verse uh, 2. One what, what of my points in bringing that up is this, um, and I want, to be, I want to be sensitive here. In my mind, the ideal is to combine what we see in 1 Corinthians 14, where you see the leading of the Spirit, in worship and in ministry, to, to leave room for that, but also to make sure at some point we're, we're making sure that we cover all the scriptures. The, the pattern for the, the church in the New Testament is, is relatively simple. It's not extremely complicated. I believe that leaves flexibility so that when you do this in Kenya, or when you do it in Mexico City, or in Tokyo, where our brother's from, or in you know, upstate New York, People are different in those places. Their schedules are different. Their needs are different. You can do these things, and there's still some flexibility. Many people have talked about how the New Testament pattern of the church is great. They've seen a beauty on the mission field, how the, the pattern is, is, uh, is, is duplicatable. So we, we have here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, um, and I think I, I think I started to say something it didn't. Let me just read this verse. Um, here's, what I, here's what I didn't finish saying. Sometimes local assemblies, in their desire to, to allow the Holy Spirit to lead in ministry, don't realize that the Holy Spirit, I believe, has asked us to teach all the scriptures. You know how that issue when we talk about the, the, the will of God in my life, knowing the will of God, and you'll tell people, don't ask God God's leading on something he's already revealed to you in scripture. I mean, it's, it's in the scriptures. Lord, should I marry an unbeliever? Don't expect any. I mean, it's, it's in print. You can read it. You know? um, Paul's letter to the Corinthian assembly, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or, or 2 Corinthians. But I, I think this is a similar sort of thing. And um, we are seeking balance on these things. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, we read this. 
Again, Paul's last words, and this time to an individual. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 1, verse 2. In the things that you have heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, some of you have already unpacked this verse with others, right? And you know there are how many generations in this verse? There's four. Think, think through them. The first generation was Paul, okay? The things that you have heard from me, Paul. Where did Paul get his doctrinal teaching from? From Christ. Then there's Timothy, the things you have heard of me. There's two generations. Paul passed them on to Timothy. I'm thinking of doctrine here. Now I'm not thinking about teaching all 66 books, the whole counsel of God. Now I'm thinking of doctrine, the truth that was passed down. The things that you have heard of me from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men. So this is a generation that's going to follow Timothy. Not just someone that shows up at the building, but faithful men. Who can do what? Teach others also. We've got four generations here. If I ever saw a verse that gave me license to plan to make sure that we were going to do this, it would be that verse. Now, we realize that the, the, that the local church is not an organization, but sometimes we think that, that being an organism implies disorganization, right? Um, sometimes we could do with a little bit of organization because it indicates we're taking obedience seriously. If you really intend to do something, it shows. It shows. And Paul, it's right there, wanted to make sure that it went from Timothy to faithful brothers, and not just anybody, but those who could teach, so it got to the next generation. And you know the implications of this. Paul wanted doctrine to go on and on and on and on today. And so I got certain things from those that taught me. What's my job? To make sure I commit them to faithful brethren who can teach others also. And so I have to think about what am I doing here in Southern California and how am I going to do that? And it's something that I think about. But I give this verse to you really for the concept of the word doctrine. If I can use the word, the word theology. Um, some people don't like the word theology or systematic theology because it makes them think of dry books. It makes them think of overly academic type of thinking. In my mind, systematic just means you're being thorough. You're going through all of the scriptures and collecting what all of the scriptures say about a certain point of truth, and you're saying those things. This is really almost systematic theology on the local church. This book is not about marriage. It's not about the gospel. It's not about the Holy Spirit, really. These books are primarily about the local church. Somebody sat down and said, let's try to say as much as we can about the local church. I mean, obviously, they're not trying to be exhaustive with these size books, but the point is, is that if you don't teach people what doctrine is, if we don't, someone's going to. And today, something has changed that hasn't really existed in the history of the church. And you know what that is? It starts with an I. It ends with the word net. It's called the internet. Ricky just got there. <laughs> People are spending hours and hours 
You're spending hours. I'm spending hours on the internet. Just nod your head. It's true. No, not everybody. But 89% of, I think, the world, well, no, the United States population is on the web. The point of saying this is that people today are going out on the internet to figure out what they should believe. They want to look something up, they go look online. It's faster to go type in rapture, inner, than to like, you know, go hunting through certain things. Now, I really appreciate books, and I am still more comfortable reading from them. But it's something that's happening a lot. We need, catch this phrase, we need digital shepherds. What do I mean by that? We need to be able to tell people, listen, if you're going to go on the internet to look for doctrinal truth, go here. If you're looking for something on marriage, if you're looking for something on, on, on prophecy, go here. I mean, we've done the same thing with print, right? Good shepherds don't say, hey, hit up the local Christian bookstore, see what you find. <laughs> Come back and tell me you found something interesting. That's not, that's not what they do. Typically, they'll say, this is what I grew up seeing my dad do, read this article. You know, start here. You really have to read this book. If you don't read any other books, read this one. It, the, the, the assumption is, is that they've done some reading um, and they've seen some things and, or if you're like me, you might say, well, read this chapter. Don't read that chapter though. And then they're going to read that chapter. We need to do the same thing with, with the internet. Like it or don't like it, it has to be done. It just has to be done. Go to these sites, go to these pages, um, and that really begs the question whether I could help with something like that, and I'd, I'd be willing to, but there's so much good content. Old content that was out of print is now available. You, if, you want, if you want the writings of some of the early brethren, I can get them all for you in, in one website in text. stempublishing.com or .org. Sacred text in media, electronic media. You want Darby, you want Kelly, you want J.G. Bellet, you want um, uh, Anthony Norris Groves. They're, it's all there. And you can search it, which is a lot faster than flipping through pages. There's a benefit to that, but there's a danger. There's a need for that today. If we don't teach doctrine, what because of the reality, there are so many blogs and so many videos that are that are that are just pouring theological concepts into people's minds that they're going to get certain ideas if we don't give them out. You see the basic point? Based on Paul's exhortation to make sure that we get what he taught into the minds and hearts of those that can teach the next generation, I think the world that we live in has made this a little bit of a crisis, a little bit of an emergency. Um, and be careful when you're online. Be careful. Ask somebody if you see something. But let me take you to one verse, and then I'm going to close. Luke chapter 24. I did use the word systematic theology or doctrine. Some of you might think, well, I guess I see the point, but why, why belabor it? What you believe matters. Every one of you, if I could say this, is a theologian. Theos meaning God, logos are words. You think about gods. They're words about gods, thoughts about God. You think through doctrine. You have a set of beliefs, and that affects the way you live. And when I talk about 
doctrine or theology, let me give you a verse that actually gives, again, some freedom for that. And it's in Luke chapter 24. I believe our Savior was the first one to do this. Luke chapter 24, I, I, I actually already hinted at this. Read, verse, read with me verse number, we'll just start at verse number 24. The Lord Jesus has come alongside the two that are walking on the road to Emmaus. Certain of those who are with us went with the tomb to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Verse 25, then he, that's Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in what? All that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Messiah, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? Why? Because that's what the scripture said would happen. And here's your verse. And beginning at Moses and in all the scriptures, he, excuse me, in, in beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's what you call Christology. Not that you need to use fancy names. But we ought to be able to go through all the scriptures and say, this is what God's word says about Christ. This is what God's word says about the spirit. This is what God's word says about, and, and fill in the blank. Now, that's a lifelong endeavor, is it not? It is. But if we don't do it, someone will. And there's a lot of, I saw some of my good friends. I saw them saved in the local high school. I ran track at a, at a high school in Florida. They were saved. They came out to our local church. They, um, they, they grew with us. And three or four of them are in different local churches today because of theology and doctrinal disagreements. And I think a better job could have, could have been done in teaching them. Um, maybe not a better job, but looking back, there's some things that I wish would have been different. So those are two, two of the nine characteristics of healthy local churches. One, shepherds know the difference between managing people and shepherding people, managing meetings. And two, we have a plan to teach God's word, all of it, and doctrine. Uh, so it's passed on. God willing, tonight we'll tackle a few more topics. Let's pray. Father in heaven, here we are standing with your word in our language and print. Lord, here I am standing up before believers, telling and teaching, Lord. But you know and I know that we're, we're busy people. Many have fears, many have stresses, many have cares, they're tired, some are excited and interested in certain things. The life and the world moves around us so fast, so complicated, so many things to do, calling our hearts, calling our attention, good things, important things, Something's not so good. Father, in all this, Lord, we confess a need of help to be what you want us to be. Lord, the calls have gone down through the ages for men and women to be men and women of God, for churches to be examples of the universal church in local areas, to shine lights of testimony. Lord, we want to be that. We want to be what you want us to be. Lord, help us. Help us to be. Lord, raise up among us or bring down or whatever it needs to be those men and women who are necessary to help us to be what you thought of, what your son thought of, 
when the church was first spoken about in the Gospels and then in Acts. Lord, we confess our neediness. We confess our weakness. We confess our inability. Lord, we confess our, all these things, Father. Use us for your glory. Get glory from Claremont Bible Chapel. Use us as a light in this, this city. Lord, help all those around us, whatever they're called. They name the name of Christ, Lord. Lord, revive them and call them back to your plan and your pattern for the church because your way is best. We pray these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.